Bench warmers, it is a very, very special episode this time of the Far End of the Bench. We teased it on our episode Wednesday. You've probably been hearing the stuff on the Unhinged Sports Network, but we got another world champion on the Far End of the Bench podcast. Myself, Jimmy Pilato, and Nico Bryant, and joined this time by all pro offensive linemen, Super Bowl 50 champion, Luis Vasquez, one of the greatest to ever do it. It was just we, we didn't just talk about his time as an offensive lineman. We talked about his background growing up and what kind of molded him into the person that we all got to see on the field for Sundays for, I believe, uh, six to seven years. I, we'll, we'll have to we'll, we'll double check that when, when we put this out. But it, he, he talked about everything. He was an open book, just just the same way that the Birdman interview was. It, it just like we started off talking about sports, but it, it evolved into so many different things. He's a a great man and he's starting to do great things with his foundation. So we're super happy to have this episode on here. Be sure to follow us on social media at FEOTB pod. Uh, and for Lewis's foundation, you can find him on Instagram as I'm pulling it up really quick. Cause I was looking it up actually before we were going to record this, you can follow his foundation on Instagram, Lewis Vasquez legacy. Um, and, and that page is on there, but he's trying to, to bring, uh, a different kind of culture to the areas of Texas and, and just the people like him growing up where they don't necessarily have the world, but they have a lot of ambition. So he's doing a lot of great things. Uh, Nico, I know that he is a Bronco, but I'm going to adopt him as my favorite player. Just, just because it was such an awesome interview. First NBA champ and now a Super Bowl champion. We can't, we can't, we can't miss. The champ is here. the bench podcast boy do we have a good episode for you all today we have 2013 first team all pro super bowl 50 champion um former associated press third team all american in college with the university of texas tech former san diego charger and denver bronco lewis vasquez what an honor it is to have you on sir thank y'all for having me Appreciate it. Of course, man. Maybe first thing we got to talk about, you were very, very passionate in the community, very passionate about the game of football, but um, the Lewis Vasquez Legacy Foundation, what a beautiful or foundation you have over there in Texas. I've heard rumors that could be coming here to Colorado soon. Not going to name my sources, but I haven't heard, <laughs> he, he heard a few rumors here and there about that. Um, would love to hear some more about the or Louis Vasquez or Legacy Foundation, what you guys got going on over there. Yeah, so um... – had it not been for sports uh, for myself, then I would have had no idea how to fill out a college application. I mean, college probably was not uh, something that was in my future had it not been for sports. So, and over the years thinking about that, um, there's nothing set aside for kids, underprivileged youth. And that's where I fell, fell under. My parents worked paycheck to paycheck and, um, my middle toe is permanently bent because I grew so rapidly. And, you know, at the time my parents put apart. Um, so I was living with my father and my dad could only afford one pair of shoes throughout the entire school year. So the second half of the spring semester, I was having to shove my foot into a shoe that was, you know, a size or two, too small. Um, so um, not having the resources or knowledge of these resources, kind of really, um, and it's still kind of um, 
prominent today where they don't, uh, there's no, no particular organization or anything of that nature that um, is set aside for, and I'm sure there is now, but that's why I started mine. I wanted to give underprivileged youth access to resources or um, the ability to, uh, un- to be able to, uh, to be your own boss, entrepreneurship, if you will. So um, again, it's aimed at underprivileged youth. There's a big Hispanic population here in San Antonio, Texas, where I'm currently living, as well as there is in Denver. Um, I'm, that's not the only demographic I'm at. Again, it's all at Privileged Youth, and I give access to simple resources as um, how to fill out a college application or workshops. Um, you know, because uh, unfortunately, school isn't for everybody. I get it. I didn't really like school. I was good at some subjects, not so good at others. Um, but um, so I can, I want eventually want to tag on a scholarship program for those that qualify uh, in the next five years so they can further their education. But uh, aside of that, um, I also have workshops that teach kids how to work certain programs um, or put together a business model. There, I have a, a partnership with Microsoft here down the street. And one of my workshops was game coding. So went there and, um, you know, it was a group of about 25 or so students from uh, inner city school that came out and they were learning how to code. Uh, what was the game? What was, what's the, the game that's not very good in graphics? Is it, uh, were they, they trying Frogger? Cause I think I, I did it. Minecraft. That was it. Yeah. So they were coding Minecraft and they were learning. And these kids, uh, I mean, you give them the tools, these kids pick it up like that. I couldn't even understand what the hell they were doing. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Next thing I know it's raining pink sheep. Like I just made it rain pink sheep. Like you just put in a bunch of jumble of letters and different symbols I've never seen. And boom, there you go. So, um, so that was one. Another one was um, how to work PowerPoint. But in doing that, they had to put together a business, a business model, a business plan, target the demographic, how they're going to target that demographic. And these are things that I wish I learned in school. Um, just because now life after football, um, I mean, this sounds ridiculous and Birdman may be able to attest this, but when I got out of, uh, when I, when I got done with football, I asked my wife how to fill out an envelope to send it. I didn't know where our address went and where the, the rec- uh, recipient's address went. Like something as simple as that, because you know when we're playing sports, we give it to our secretary, hey, can we send us this address? Yeah, I got you, don't worry about it. But now it's like, dude, I, I mean, I'm in real life now. And those are some of the simplest skills that uh, just for whatever reason have left, you know, so. Um, just keeping these kids, giving these kids tools that are going to benefit them life after school. Cause you know, school for some is good for some, it's not so good. So um, giving them tools to be successful in life, whether it be further education or, you know, becoming their own boss. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's definitely for sure a big, um, big bonus. And, and what you've done down there in Texas, I've, 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 
gotten to see it from afar and hopefully you're able to get it, bring it back to here to Denver um, considering you won a Super Bowl here and you have such great ties to the city. I know you're beloved around here. So um, the, the Louis Vasquez Legacy Foundation, I recommend everyone out there, go check it out um, on the, on, online. They have a bunch of great stories, a lot of great things. Louis Vasquez obviously here being the uh, main um main partner and being the, being the spokesman of all of it, but um, giving back to the youth is something that uh, should go without notice. And we really take our hats off to you for that because um, not many people anymore are really focusing on the youth anymore. And it's, it's great initiative seeing what you have been doing. Yeah. yeah. Good. I, I just think that it's, it, it, I like what you're doing with the, obviously not everybody enjoys school. And, and honestly, I was decent at school, but I, I think, when you have these, when you get out of sports and, and bringing, bringing, using sports to bring people into the foundation is a good idea, but then, you know, not everybody's going to be a pro athlete. Not everybody's going to be a, a Luis Vasquez who's able to play in the, in the pros for a long time. So taking the, their love and passion for athletics and then partnering it with skills that they can use for after they're done with their athletic career, however long that goes and being able to just be a, a good functioning member of society in a place where they might not have a lot of um, a lot of people that can get them to that that point mm-hmm. I think that's also a, a huge part of of why this is going to be successful and I think that that's it. I mean it's a very I, I hats off to you for trying to to bring those people those kids that opportunity that you you said said to yourself you wish you had when you were younger um, yeah. it's going to be beneficial for them not just on the field but after where whatever they're done playing it's going to be beneficial for the rest of their life absolutely um and just to add to that what really kind of uh triggered it for me as well is um kind of breaking the mold um you know you're a product of your environment and yes that's true i mean there are their anomalies but for the most part you're a product of your environment so for me um Again, my parents worked paycheck to paycheck. My mom worked at a local uh, grocery store, she still does. And my father has worked factory. You know, he's been in a factory all his life. So while they did teach me some good values um, and great work ethic, that's kind of where the buck stops. You know, um, you can be the hardest worker in the room, but in today's world, that's only gonna get you so far. Like, how do you get past that? How do you excel in or turn whatever you're good at or passionate about, turn that into a career for yourself? You know, instead of working for somebody else, working a dead end job type of thing. I wanted to break the mold because for most underprivileged youth, they're either in a bad situation in their home life or, um, you know, could be like me where just money was, was tight and didn't have the means to, you know, take me to different seminars or, you know, uh, after school curriculum, you know, after school activities to uh, learn after school learning programs, things like that. So, um, you know, it's just want to break the mold um, and, you know, show them a different way. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you have the opportunity to do. I mean, uh, the, your product of your environment to a point, I, I agree with that. And then there's still great things that you can learn being in that situation. But like you said, if you don't have somebody who can <coughs> push you forward or push you to a, a different path, it, it can, it can kind of stunt you. But I think this is, you know, obviously people in those situations are some of the toughest people that you'll, you'll normally find some of the hardest working people in the room. And now taking all that passion and work ethic and putting it towards something that's just, um, 
I, I can't tell you how awesome that sounds and, and I'm sure that it's, it's been going great. Um, we would want to transition now a little bit. So obviously you said with your foundation, it's based mainly off your background. Um, you grew up in Corsicana, Texas. Is that right? Or, or did it. cool. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping Wikipedia wasn't wrong on that one. Um, no, that was it. Small town. Yeah, it, it seemed like it. What, what was kind of was athletics the way that you kind of made a name for yourself in the community? Because I, yeah, I so growing up, we didn't. There was again, there was not a lot of money, so um, the only sport well, I played a couple of sports growing up: baseball uh, and football was always a constant. So um, football being king here in Texas, you know, uh, my dad made me wait till I could play tackle football. So I've been playing tackle football since I was seven years old. My dad would not allow me to play uh, flag football or anything like that. He was like, no, if you're going to play football, you're going to play real football. Okay, dad. So got into playing football for the YMCA, the local YMCA. I want to say there was probably about eight teams. And um, my wife laughs about this because I was always uh, a heftier kid. So anytime you were above a certain weight, they put this big black X on your helmet. And that meant you could not run with the ball. No matter if you fumble recovered or whatever the case may be, you couldn't run with the ball because you're essentially labeled too big. So she she gets a, a kick out of it telling that joke. But um, so, you know, football, um, I landed on the offense line right off the bat. Um, and I stayed there, uh, you know, all through school. Um, but as I was probably seven, from seven to 10, I played baseball as well in the spring. Um, and then just one day I just realized baseball was way too slow for me. I was first base, pitcher, and outfield. And yeah, about fifth, sixth inning, I'm just kind of like staring off I'm like, dude, this is not for me. So baseball fell off the wayside. I stuck with football, obviously. And then at the time, my uncles were, I have two twin uncles. Uh, they're in their mid forties now. Um, and they got into boxing. And at that time, like uh, Mike Tyson was kind of on his way out. Uh, De La Hoya was uh, reigning champ. Uh, those were like the bigger names um, of boxers that I remember growing up watching. So they got into boxing, which inspired me to get into boxing. But the boxing ring, uh, or boxing gym that we had to go to was like an hour and a half away north up in the Dallas area. And my dad just, he couldn't foot that bill no more. And uh, I boxed four years Golden Gloves and that was, that was it. So football was always there uh, and being in playing in Texas, you know, um, I didn't have to pay for any uh, additional pads or cleats because I do know some of my friends that I played college with from other states they would have to pay for their cleats. They would have to pay for their pads, their helmet. That was weird to me because here in Texas, here go go to the trainer, get fitted, and that's your equipment. You know, yeah, so that's always weird to me that they had to pay for their stuff. But you know, uh, just a perk of playing football here in Texas, I guess. Um, so you know, played tackle uh, up until all through high school, and middle school 
from middle school to high school that summer before I hit high school, mm -hmm. I hit another growth spurt. So by the time I graduated or left eighth grade, I was six foot. By the time I got to high school as a freshman, I was six, three and a half, I was almost six, four. So I shot up pretty decently. I was 275 as a freshman. So uh, still stuck me a left tackle. I was there and my number was 65 freshman year. So, um, and after that, I got moved up to varsity. So I was varsity letterman for three years, changed my number to 78. And then um, that whole time there, I knew this is when the Cowboys were in the, their dynasty days, right? Winning those three Super Bowls in the 90s. So I grew up watching them. Uh, Nate Newton, Larry Allen, those guys were the guys that I watched. Great wall at Dallas. Yeah, exactly. So um, I always knew that was a dream of mine, but in the back of my head, I had already had it that it was nearly impossible. I mean, it, it was not going to happen. It's just coming from, you know, where I came from, I was like, there's, there's no damn way it's possible. But it was a dream of mine as a kid. Um, I didn't even think about playing college ball. I had no inclination about playing college ball. Um, until the end of my junior season. End of my junior season, I got a call from uh, Coach Mallory, Les Miles' right-hand man. Say, hey, this is Coach Mallory from Oklahoma State. Um, I'm calling you on behalf of Coach Les Miles. He wants to extend a full-ride scholarship offer to Oklahoma State. And at that time, you know, my dad, my parents, I told them what happened. My parents were like, well, where do you sign? And I'm like, I don't know. This is the first time this happened to me. It came out of nowhere. I didn't even think about playing college football. And, then, you know, this kind of blindsides me. So I'm asking the coaches, and all my coaches are like, just wait. This is the first of many to come. And sure enough, um, they came rolling in. Um, I mean, from all the only ones in the Big 12 that did not offer me was Oklahoma. But I got offered from, you know, a bunch of the bigger schools, Michigan, Miami, um, even Ivy League schools, Stanford, Harvard. Um, <laughs> again, th those were teams that I probably would have never made it just because I didn't put that much effort into my SAT. Don't tell nobody. But with my GPA, I was good. Um, but uh, so I waited and I wanted to play University of Texas initially. So once these offers were coming out, they offered me. Well, so they said, came out here for a day camp. And then I had an assistant coach come talk to me. And I was, I burned up every other lineman in that camp. And the assistant coach comes up to me and goes, son, if D1 ball isn't for you, I got a nice D3 school you can go to. Full, you know, everything paid for, yada, yada, yada. Are you kidding me? Like, D1 and D3. And at that point, I got really turned off of UT. And then two weeks later, they came back and said, okay, now we have a scholarship for you. So they lied me once already because that scholarship they gave me wasn't there. Another one of the recruits fell through. So I was the backup plan. So at that point, I was like, you know what? Forget you. I'm going to go elsewhere and I'm gonna come back and kick your ass. And I never liked AM. A&M just, whatever reason, just never caught on to me. 
Um, and during this time, I had verbally committed to Texas Tech because I wanted to stay and play football in the state of Texas. So I was on my way to take my official visit to Texas Tech. As I'm on the highway, Coach Mallory calls me. Les Miles just took the head job at LSU. I say, hey, we understand you're verbally committed to Texas Tech, but if you want to keep your options open, you have a full ride scholarship to LSU. And buddy, you're talking about a dilemma. It's like, man, do, do I stay closer to home, but play out of state and play LSU? Or do I stay in Texas, go further away from home and go that route? And if I went to LSU, I would have had a national championship ring. But who knows if I would have had a Super Bowl ring. So, yeah, yeah, guess, every, uh, yeah everything works out for a reason, right? I guess I mean, it kind of worked itself out. Yeah, it, sure. everything works, works itself out for a reason. Going back to your high school days, um, was so obviously football is your main love. Baseball and boxing have its ring in there. Uh, for, for, like, for, for young athletes, you, do you really think that um, boxing and baseball really helps with your football skills? Obviously, being a left tackle, then moving to guard later on in your career, uh, did you really see that translate to the next level when you uh, went, went on to Texas Tech and then went on to the pros? Baseball, not so much. Boxing, for sure. Um, if you know anything about line play, um, I know Jimmy does. Uh, Handwork. I, I was a fullback, so I know how, I know okay. I know line play a little bit. He was, a, right, so. he was a guard. He was a guard with a running start. That's what we like to call it. <laughs> there you go. So um, you know, hand-eye coordination is huge. Um, learning how to snap off a punch properly—it's uh, big without trying to lunge forward. Um, and also the, the footwork in boxing, uh, yes, it's different, but you get to move, you have to move, move fluid and instead of like a robot. Um, and when I train my guys or my kids, I tell them from the waist down, you're a dancer. From the waist up, you're a boxer. Because a lot of these kids are so robotic in their movements. I'm like, dude, you can't play like that. You have to be fluid. So that's why I tell my guys, waist down, you're a dancer, waist up, you're a boxer. And I kind of just go through the deals. I'm like, you don't see boxers all tight and trying to throw a punch. I know they're loose and they just let them fly. Um, so boxing for sure helped. Um, I did, uh, we had a boxing coach all through college. Um, and, you know, all my career, uh, we had boxing mitts. Um, and that, my coach uh, that I learned from in San Diego, he taught me that. And it's kind of one of those deals. Y'all seen American Sniper, I'm sure, right? Yeah. What was what did his instructor tell him when he was learning how to become a sniper? You aim small, you miss small. Well, these boxing mitts are about this big around, so we got to fit both of our big hands on that. So it's kind of you know giving us a precision target to hit. So boxing was a huge part, and it translated so much in football for me, and I kept that all through my career. Even the uh, mental side too, right? Because you got to be when you're fatigued and everything, because not, not on the, not, not comparing or anything, but I did box a little bit. There's a, Devera Williamson has a gym in, in Colorado, former Golden Gloves champ, but I felt like just the fatigue of having to know when to, what punches to throw in the right combination when you're so tired and everything like that. It's a big mental toughness thing too. And honestly, I, I think for, and that's that brings me to the question I want to ask how how did you develop your mental toughness because professional athletes are a different kind of breed anyways so how do you think that you you became the athlete that you were to be able to be as successful as you were you know I never thought about 
being like mentally tough person or or wanting to be the 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 most mentally tough person. I just and I told my wife this whenever I was playing, I gave myself no other choice to but to succeed, you know, because I feared failure. I still feel fear failure. I let that motivate me and drive me to be the best at whatever I was doing. So if it was uh, a drill that we did in football, I was determined to be the best. And then I would translate that into live action. I wanted to be the best in my position. Well, years down the road, I ended up being the best in my position. You know, so um, that's all I really thought about. I didn't let, um, I didn't really train um, in a way to become mentally tough. I just, it was one of those deals. If I was tired, I was like, hey, I, I can't, can't give up because I'm damn sure not going to let this guy embarrass me and beat me. So I had to, I had to, you know, suck it up and go with it. Yeah, I think it, that's a fairly common theme with guys who are really high level, like yourself. Um, just being able to always be push yourself to know that you're going to be the best is, is something huge. Um, when you let me add something to that, um, you know, when it came to football or, or even boxing, um, there's just something, and this is, sounds savage, but it, you know, I I know, and your dad, he'll love this, Nico. Um, this is how I got off on on the field, or even in boxing too. Um, destroying another man's will with your bare hands, and him not to be able to do a damn thing about it, is probably one of the most satisfying feelings I've ever had to this day. Knowing that I'm about to beat the hell out of you, and there ain't a damn thing you can do about it. That to me is. I got goosebumps just talking about it right now. It's, that, I think we all got was, goosebumps from that, yeah. That was a joy. That is still a joy. And I still resonate that message to my kids. I mean, I, if I remember correct, one of my last uh, quotes our Super Bowl year was, uh, by the end of the fourth quarter, we want to feel your soul wilt in our hands. And that, that was kind of um, – I mean, we weren't the most spectacular offense in the NFL that year, but we were heavyweight. We were we were like a heavyweight uh, body blows. I mean, we're going to, after a while, you know, those later rounds, those body blows hurt, and they hurt bad. And that's just kind of what we were, you know, it was just with a monotonous attitude. Boom, we're still going to come after you, come after you. And after a while, those one, two-yard runs turned four to five, turned 10, 20-yard runs. It's heavyweight body blows, you know, yeah. that – that that was that was a satisfying feeling. Yeah, I mean, as an offensive lineman, you kind of have to have that mantra um, because if, in the back of your head, if you don't if you don't have that thought process of I can move you two yards that way more than you, you move me two yards this way, then I'm going to win this play, and that's how my team's going to be successful. And you definitely had that throughout your whole career. Yeah, and I had I mean I had some great uh, uh, teammates that I learned from, um, and this is going back to my days in San Diego. Um, so after college, um, again, um, to kind of back up when I was in college, I didn't even think about playing, um, pro ball. I just still at that point, didn't think it was a possibility for me until, um, scouts started to come look at me. You know, I was using college as a way to, to get my education, you know, damn, I get to play a little football and get my education even better until scouts started to come and look at me. 
And then I realized, well, damn, there might be something to this, you know? So I started to dedicate myself even more to football and um, wanted to become the best. And so long story short, drafted in the third round um, by the Chargers. I get out there and I'm talking about that first rookie year was a whirlwind. Two, like three days later after I got drafted, I'm already on the plane. I'm out in San Diego and I'm in minicamp. And I'm going against Jamal Williams, you know, Sean Merriman, Stephen Cooper, um, D, Quentin Jammer on the defense. You know, those guys were the guys, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I'm going against them in, in, on the football field. I'm like, dude, what the hell am I doing here? It was kind of one of those surreal moments, but um, anxious. And you, I, I ain't going to lie, I was scared at the same time. But I think that drove me to hold my own. You weren't supposed to be the starter going into that rookie year, right? Because there was an injury in front of you and you kind of got pushed up into that starting No. Moment. So after whenever I got brought, uh, drafted by San Diego, they had um, uh, Mike Goff, his right guard. Um, they had released him. He got picked up by Kansas City. And they brought in Keenan Forney. He was a nine-year vet from the Jaguars. He was starting in front of me. Well, after training camp um, and battling it out, one day coach kind of threw me in there. He goes, I'm a firm believer in if you're playing around guys that have an elevated level of play, then your level of play elevates as well. So I'm like, mm, I don't know if it really goes that way, but all right, coach, you know, you put me in there, let's go type of thing. And as soon as I got in there, I never looked back, and they ended up cutting Keenan Forney, which was I thought was supposed to be my backup. But after they let him go, coach comes up to me and goes, "Hey, you're all we got, so you can't get hurt this year." And I'm like, oh, "Shit, now what do I do?" I'm like, "All right, well, um, luckily we had a swing guy because I ended up getting hurt the uh, first game of my rookie year, dislocated my kneecap, but I only missed two games, so." Uh, you know, I was I was okay with that, um, but I learned how to become a professional and how to go about my business and be an elite lineman from not only my coach but Chris Dillman, which is a dear friend of mine still, Nick Hardwick, Marcus McNeil, all all pros, Pro Bowl Pro Bowl type players. Um, so I had, like I said, I had great vets, and they didn't do anything. Um, they never made me carry in their pads or anything like that. Like, they're like, dude, hell, you're working just as hard as we are. So I don't expect you to carry my shit. You know, you carry your own. As long as, and the only thing they asked me to do was Thursdays after weigh-ins, bring donuts. And then Fridays on away trips, it was usually McDonald's. So, um, I mean, those, those are two uh, snacks you wouldn't necessarily guess, but I guess if you're, or um, if you're, feeding the old lineman i guess that makes sense <laughs> well it was one of those deals where we all made weight so we get to splurge a little bit yeah makes sense yeah, um, okay. i, I, I want to backtrack partially so you had the i don't know if you remember this you had the 2009 when you were at the combine you had the record for the most bench press or most time you bench press 225 do you remember how many you got 
39. 39. Yep, 39. And it held the record there. Um, let's, yeah. let's go back through that a little bit because, I mean, combine, it's a different feel. You're in – I believe you guys were still in Indianapolis, right? Um, yeah. yeah, so you're in Indianapolis. How was that? I mean, going through all the interviews at the combine, I'm sure that was all overwhelming, uh, being from a small town, Texas, and seeing all the bright lights. Was that um, a kind of not come to Jesus moment, but more of like a, um, a slap in the face, wow, this I'm really here. I've, I've, I've kind of made it. No, I ain't a lot of combine sucks. <laughs> it's it's purposely meant to be dreadful. It's meant to be stressful. It's meant to wear on you. You go there and you don't sleep. You get a couple hours of sleep before they're knocking on your door and they, they don't tell you when you have a drug test. They're just random drug tests. So they could be for PEDs or, you know, street drug. They test you for everything. They don't tell you what days. So one day you just get a random knock on your door at 3.30 in the morning. Hey, you got a random drug test. Dude, it's 3.30 in the morning. Like, yeah, you got to come downstairs and wait in line. So you're waiting in line and you're thinking you can get done in an hour max, go back to your room and sleep till about 6.37. No, you're down there forever. And then... Um, after that, you got to hurry up and eat breakfast. Then you got your first deals, which are, um, I think the linemen usually go first. We have our, our weigh-ins, our pictures, and we're paraded around like cattle. I'm not lying to you. The underwear. So they, they take our hand measurements, our arm length, um, and then they strip us down to just our tights and literally walk around the stage. They have a tape that you walk from one side after they weigh you in, you walk around in just your tights in front, there's a crowd of scouts. So you walk right in front of them so they can literally check you out, what you look like without a shirt. And then you face the wall and they measure your height. So now they're looking at your backside and then you're off stage. So we're, and then we're literally paraded around like cattle. And then uh, for the most part, um, the mornings are consisted of medical examinations. Those are forever long because all 32 teams have to poke and prod and question you and look at old x-rays. What happened with this injury? How does your knee feel? And you're getting poked and prodded from everywhere. So um, it's not a comfortable feeling at all. So I didn't really have a chance to kind of sit back and like, damn, I'm, I'm, at the big at the biggest stage of my life at, at this point because I was so you know for one worried about what scouts were thinking two lack of sleep you just got no sleep after about the third day then you start going to your drills which I didn't get to run any of my drills because I popped my plantar fascia so um, all I did was lift at the combine I lifted all my measurements did all the uh, interviews those are a trip too. So I remember distinctly, um, I had an interview later in the evening, probably about seven, seven thirty, with the Chicago Bears. And um, before you go into any of these meetings, they give you an NFL uh, packet um, of waivers to sign, and one of them is an FBI background check. So I signed off on that, and college kids, you're like, dude what did I do? Like, are they going to find out about certain instances, whatever? Um, so I walk in their room and they had a tripod set up with a camera 
at this spot and they had a spotlight on the certain spot of the couch where I was supposed to sit and then they had a microphone placed right in front of me. I was like, dude, I'm about to get interrogated. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not here for football. Like, what the hell's going on? But it was just one of their tactics to kind of get you to divulge information. It's all for for character. Uh, they they want to know your character because that that's a huge part in uh, I would imagine professional sports, but at least in the NFL, I do know that uh, you know character is a big issue. So because if you're just not a team player, then um, you know they're just not going to stick around very long. Most teams only mess with you. Do, do you remember? I mean, you don't have to say if you don't want to, but do you remember any weird questions that they threw at you that you're kind of just sidelined by? You don't have to name the team. You don't want to have to call anybody out. Do you remember any of the weird ones? You know, they did question the toughness of my quarterback, Graham Harrell. They're like, why don't you? They asked me, why do you think Graham is not getting, you know, highly sought after? And I remember this. I'm like, well, shit, because he never got touched, and when he did, he acted like a baby. You know, he would he would roll. I remember he hardly ever got sacked, but when he did, he would roll around the ground as if he was, you know, extremely hurt. And we're all like, oh, damn, is he okay? And then he would look for the ref. The ref wouldn't throw a flag and he would pop up. And we're like, dude, come on, man. Is that something Coach Leach taught him to do? No, I think that was just Graham doing Graham. Um by the way, if you didn't know, Graham was a high school rival. So I, I didn't like him at all. He was a rival from a rival school, and then I ended up protecting his ass in, in college. How ironic. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah. Uh, What's up, Benchwarmers? All right, we, we've been talking about Fanatics for a long time. We want to make sure that this thing stays up to date. So we mentioned last time that you can get national championship, conference championship gear. Well, now basketball season's in full swing, hockey season's in full swing, and now we're going to have to start looking for Super Bowl championship gear. Unfortunately, Nico, it's either going to be Tom Brady again or the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl gear. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to be getting any of that. But if you're a fan of either of those teams, you got to get it. you got to get it. Use the Fanatics link in our link tree. That's the most important thing. Um, go get your good stuff there because, like I said, go get you a Mile High City jersey. Nuggets have been rolling lately. Uh, they they uh, have a great red jersey out there. I believe you can get the Nordiques jerseys too for the Avs. Go get you some of those sick uh, retroverse jerseys. No matter what team of fan or what fan of a team you are, um, go get you whatever it may be on Fanatics. He's got all the good stuff. Yep, link in our bio. It helps out the Unhinged Sports Network as a whole. At FEOTB Pod, Instagram, and Twitter. Be sure to use it and help out the Unhinged Sports Network so we can continue to bring you great content. Thanks, guys. So going through the combine and then the draft process, getting drafted in the third round, did you have a team that you, I mean, obviously being from Texas, Cowboys probably a, a dream team to play for, but did you have a team that you wanted to play for or were you just more focused on getting drafted somewhere? I was just wanting to get drafted somewhere. Now I did have an inclination of where I thought I was going to go. I thought I was either going to go to Philly, Cleveland, or Pittsburgh, because those are the only three teams that I had communication with. Um, well, I had communication with um, Miami and um, the Bears, but that, that kind of stopped at the, uh, the Combine. Um, but after the Combine, the Steelers, the Browns, and the Eagles were 
huge. There were, um, you know, I went out to see the Steelers twice. Went out to see the Bear or the Bing or the Browns, excuse me, in Philly. Um, so come draft day, you know, I the second day, I almost didn't answer because it was an eight five eight number, California. I'm like, who the hell is this? I was like, I don't, I don't know who that is. So I almost didn't answer it. And at the time, San Diego's on the clock. And I go, maybe I should answer it. And luckily I did because that was that was the draft call. So, um, you know, my dad's hooping holler in the background. I'm like, dude, I can't hear. So I had to go to the back room and finish my call and uh, came out and told him we're going to San Diego. So which was kind of completely out of left field. But, you know, if you're going to go play in a city, you know, San Diego's not a bad place to play. I mean, yeah, from Pittsburgh and Cleveland, that's a, a far stretch from right to San Diego. Yeah, no, no joke. But uh, it was odd because after I got drafted by San Diego, I saw the the Browns and the Eagles both traded down. So I know if San Diego didn't draft me, one of those other two teams were going to draft me. So I, I was pretty grateful that uh, I got drafted by them because. When I saw Cleveland and Philly city-wise, it wasn't very pretty. So, and it was a good spot. Yeah, I mean, with, I mean, San Diego, you got to play with Philip Rivers and then Damian Thomason, um, two, two, I, in my opinion, will be Hall of Famers um, when it's all said and done. Um, tell me about, tell me about your mantra being on that line, O line, because obviously LT and then Rivers got the shot or <laughs> got the bright lights, and Philip Rivers retiring this this past off season uh did you did they kind of um help you mold into the mean gritty offensive lineman you were um or was that more of a more of the rest of the guys on the group alongside with you yeah that was most of the most of the guys that uh, i was a part of o-line wise um but seeing philip how he operated um did teach me how to become a true professional did i adhere to it at most of the time, no, I'm, I'm a rookie. So um, I should have, but um, I didn't really implement those into my career until later on. I wish I would have been, but um, you know, you kind of, you kind of live and you learn type of thing. And then when you're 22, you 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 think you're invincible too. So um I did, I, there was a lot of things that Philip said to me that still, I, rem I remember to this day, um, he helped me through free agency. And uh, like I said, just to become a true professional. Him and Hardwick, those two guys were the brains of the offense. I mean, Hardwick being a center had such a knack for seeing the secondary at the center position. Chris Dillman, who in my opinion is gonna be a hall of famer, he should be. And that's what I learned from a lot. Um, turned around in meetings because Nick goes, um, yeah, I can see the safeties rotating down here and the uh, coverage is pressed over here. And I remember Dillman turning around like, how in the hell can you see that? Dillman goes, I can only see the box. And that made me feel better as a player because that's all I could see was the box. Anything outside the box was an afterthought. I didn't even think about it. Unless you're close enough to the box for me to see you, I didn't see it. So I didn't feel so bad that Dillman, a first-team all-pro player, couldn't see past the box. I just knew at that point Hardwick was just a different beast. 
And he could also pick pick up on if guys or if different teams um, brought in a new D-line coach by the way they fit the blocks. Like, dude, how do you know that? He's like, well, they're fitting blocks differently. Like, that doesn't look any different from last week to this week, but whatever. And sure enough, they had a new coach. So, um, I mean, I never got to Nick's level or Phillips' level as far as, uh, you know, knowing defenses as well as they did. They were just, again, they were different animals when it came to that. Lots of film study and then just years of being professional probably help out with that a lot. Um, yeah. Do you have any funny Philip River stories, any any stories that kind of stand out from your time playing with him? Because obviously he's known as the the guy who doesn't cuss but runs his mouth the entire game. Did you take anything from, from the way that he played? I love the way he played. Um, even when I came to Denver, I still love I had I still had tremendous love for him just because that's what you want in a leader. You want a fiery leader that's gonna go down. If you're gonna go down, you want you want to go down and kicking and screaming, clawing, scratching, biting, whatever you can, whatever you gotta do, make yourself be felt. You're just not gonna take it. So and I remember plenty of times we're down like uh, three scores with no time left. And Phillip's like, dude. We get two quick scores and onside kick, we're back in this thing. And he always talked to us in a manner that we always felt we had a chance no matter what, even if it was the furthest from reality. The way he talked to us and the passion and fire he talked with, you always felt like you had a chance with Philip. Just just how he came across and the energy he, he gave off, you were like, oh, he's right, we can still do this, we can still win this game. Um, so I love him for that. And yes, I've never heard that man cuss a day in his life, ever. But the way he talks trash, it gets under opponent's skin. It really does. Guys get pissed. Um, and, you know, I guess rightfully so, but it's how he goes about it. I think the fact that he doesn't cuss makes it that much worse, you know, because <laughs> you're looking for guys on the floor field, tempers get flaring. You're looking for guys to kind of, retaliate with some cuss words and whatnot, but not Philip. Philip like, you ought to be embarrassed. You ought to be embarrassed of yourself to put that on film. Now everybody's gonna see. You know, just stuff like that. And you're like, ooh, that kind of hurt a little bit. <laughs> it's almost like he had to think harder because he, he knew that he wasn't gonna be able to cuss. He had to think harder about what he was gonna say. So it's a little bit more personal. But it flew off the tongue so easy for Philip. I think he was just so used to doing it, man. Um, but I, I loved him. Um, LT though, LT was just a cool, calm guy. Didn't really talk a lot, just kept to himself and went about his business. Um, Gates was kind of the same way. Um, so I didn't, you know, I had uh, a few, I had, I didn't have tons of interaction with him. Obviously I blocked from him, um, but you know, he was just, he, he was older at that time. Um, and I mean, he was LT. So he just kind of, kind of kept to himself. Um, Every now and again, we'd, you know, we'd bring him in the room for a blitz pickup and whatnot. But, uh, you know, it's kind of, that was kind of the relationship with LT. Um, but uh, I do remember asking him, um, you know, about his days in Waco, because Waco is only about an hour away from my hometown. So um, we had that connection. And then we played Dallas that week, too. So it was, everybody hyped it up for coming home for him, because he's coming back home uh, to Texas. But in my hometown, it was coming home for me too. And I have, uh, actually my dad has a newspaper clipping of us scoring a touchdown. 
I'm on the ground on top of my guy, and LT is running over the top of me and scoring a touchdown in Cowboy Stadium. There's no better feeling than that. There's no, yeah. no better feeling than that. The Especially that, being from Texas, too. <laughs> uh, and the fact that I, I got to – my rookie year, I got to, you know, lead block, essentially, for uh, Hall of Fame running back. Pretty damn cool. Yeah, let's let's transition now. I mean, obviously, you play the you were playing for the Chargers. You play the Broncos twice a year. Um, you you, you talked about Philip Rivers being um, helping you through free agency and everything through that. Uh, when it came to where you were gonna look to go to, uh, where the Broncos were, they would they just catch your eye. Obviously, with Peyton being there now, and then um, their offense being rejuvenated with all that was was that were the Broncos really um, a team that you saw twice a year you were very familiar with how um they run their their team from afar did you feel like you wanted to be in that room now you know um at that point in time i didn't know where i was gonna go um i honestly didn't but i knew where the broncos were headed and it was special places um and then um so when i was going through free agency chris dillman was he's from indiana so he was naturally a, uh, a Peyton fan. And he told me this story when he made his first Pro Bowl. They were out in uh, um, Hawaii. And Chris said he was at the bar by himself. And uh, Philip came up and said, hey, Chris. And he was like, the fact that Philip or Peyton Manning knew my name, it's pretty damn special. And on top of that, he bought me a beer. So he was like, uh, I saw for that. He was he he loved Peyton even more, and Chris was telling he's like, dude, you need to go with Peyton. Peyton's gonna get you a ring. Go with Peyton. Go with Peyton. Um, but at that time, you know, um, I was still trying to figure out the whole free agency. I was trying to figure out who would be interested, you know, because um, I knew I wasn't gonna go back to San Diego. If they they would have had to pay me tons of money to even keep me there after the after the shadiness and stuff they put me through and just uh, the icing was on the cake already i knew i wasn't going back uh, i was just kind of using them as a bargaining tool type of thing um but um four and a half minutes in a free agency denver came calling throwing numbers at me it's like, damn i did not expect that and i'm on my way back from arizona back to san diego um it's like, dude what's going on so my agents tell me, I said, hey, they're calling, give me this number. And um, my old line coach just went to Indianapolis. So uh, we were dealing with Indy for a little bit. But then uh, Indy, I guess the stakes got a little too high for Indy, what they could afford. So after a while, it was just, just Denver. So I, I dealt with Denver. And uh, I was like, you know what? I know where they're going. They're, they're, they're going to be, you know, last year they had just – lost in the AFC championship next year will be pretty damn good. So I decided to join them. And, uh, you know, luckily I did. It was the best decision I made in my life. One of them, excuse me, one of them. And uh, it turned out to be pretty damn good for me. So, um, you know, playing with guys like Peyton, you know, Champ Bailey, uh, just guys like that. It was like, dude, I had, I really had a, a hell of a career and I was blessed to play with. Uh, tons of legends that, that that I was able to play with. Yeah, I mean every every place that you went, it seemed like you were with a legend. Whether it was Coach Leach, obviously in college with legendary uh, college coach, and then 
I mean, Peyton, it just seems like he's the coolest guy anywhere that he goes. And he's just always, could you, did he take his calmness and kind of push that basically did his persona kind of permeate through the team? And then obviously you guys were the best offense in the league your first year. How much of an influence did he have on, on all of that? He had tons, but calmness was something that he didn't really have. Now he must've done a good job uh, fooling everybody in the stands or on, you know, at home watching the game, but Peyton was fierce, man. Um, he demanded perfection on the football field, uh, rightfully so. Um, but I remember one of the rookie receivers we had just got, um, uh, I think DT was nursing something. So they put him in, this is during OTAs and Peyton threw him the ball, hit him square in his chest. And he's coming, he's coming back like, my bad, Peyton, my bad, my bad. Peyton goes, you damn right, it's your bad. You're a second round pick. You gotta be embarrassed yourself. Go upstairs and give him back your contract. Like, whoa, never heard, you know, anybody talk about it. Cause for the most part, we're all vets on that, on that offense, except for the rookies that started coming in. So that was, cause Phillip was not like that when, when it came to rookies, but Peyton, Peyton was not afraid to let you know um, if you pissed him off or you did something wrong. I mean, he demanded perfection, but you know, there's a reason why he was the player he was. Um, did, did it help you at all? Obviously Von Miller earlier in, early, was early in his career, but DeMarcus Ware being on the other side as well, did seeing th- those guys every day in practice prepare you for um, seeing the Martellus Bennett's in the Super Bowl and seeing all these Geno Atkins and all those great players um, aside you? Did that um, give you a slight edge when you, when you got to the real game? Because you basically I mean, you're playing best of the best every day in practice. When you get to the game, I'm sure um, that had to cross your mind a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, I feel like we were pretty pretty well um, coached up by that point, um, you know, facing those two guys. I mean, uh, there'd be times where we would sit back and watch offenses that got stuck in a passing situation. We're like, ew, we feel bad for y'all. Which way do you slide? Do you slide to Vaughn or you slide to DeMarcus? And then you slide to either one of those guys. You got Malik Jackson and Derek Wolf middle, you know, so – yeah, we felt bad for those guys, but having those guys on our team for sure helped us uh, prepare for the better pass rushers of the league. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of the end results, you know, show themselves. Yeah, that first Super Bowl run, obviously, that was the more offensive dominated one. How was that? Because you hadn't really experienced that kind of a season before. Um, and then when you got to the Super Bowl, kind of just what, what were your feelings on the sideline? play when the national anthem was being sung and you're like oh it's it's go time now and it was in new york too to add it to add even more pressure on it Dude, that you know it it was the super bowl the first one was um i mean the, it's it's hard enough to to win a game and it's really hard to score touchdowns in the nfl but that year man it, it opening up with against baltimore and just putting up seven touchdowns on them like dude it, is this the way the rest of the year is going to go I mean it it was everything felt easy it was so scary that it felt easy but then um, you know we get in New York and I think the coaches really kind of started it off bad for us they were um, we implemented the game plan two weeks prior we usually always implement it the week of um, 
And the thing about coaches, you give them enough time, they'll start to outthink themselves and second guess themselves. So when we got to New York, after implementing the game plan, uh, our offensive coordinator says, all right, guys, given Peyton's history in, in uh, the Super Bowls, Peyton always goes on silent count. So this time, we don't think the Seahawks fans are going to travel well. We're going to go on cadence. <laughs> okay, whatever, no big deal. Um, and we get out on that field, and I'm telling you, I couldn't hear a damn thing. I was face-to-face with our center, yelling at the top of my lungs, trying to relay a call, and we couldn't hear each other. We're like, dude, we're screwed. So we get down, and it was a run play that uh, we were going to open up the game with. And Peyton got back there and said, hut, but nobody heard him until he started coming up to check the play because he realized nobody was could hear. He came up to check the play, and we heard something. And at that point, I think he was behind me trying to give the right side of the offensive line the check. We hear something, so we thought he said, hut, Center's, center hikes the ball, and there it goes. Start the game off with a uh, safety. And from that point, everything that could go wrong did. I mean, it steamrolled from there. We couldn't get nothing going. And later in that game, I actually broke two ribs. I still don't know how how the hell I managed to do that. But, yeah, I broke two ribs that game. Yeah, I mean, that Super Bowl, I think all Broncos fans everywhere would, would like to forget for sure. But um, I would I would have to guess that it gave you motivation, though, going into Super Bowl 50, um, when, going up against – Knowing that you have a better defense uh, than what you did the year before, two years before, excuse me, and then that offense still having a, the main core basically, um, did Super Bowl 50, did that preparation, you guys feel like well, this is no longer about, yeah, we're here. Now it's, now it's our time to win. Was that kind of the mindset going into that Super Bowl 50? Yeah, everybody was more business oriented when we were out there. We, we still had time to, to kind of let loose and have fun, but once, um, you know, practice and it was business time. Everybody was more focused, especially the guys that were on that team two years prior. I remember that feeling. I think we were all more a little business oriented um, and focused on the task at hand, which was the whole reason we're there is to win the damn game. So not just participating in it, but to win the damn thing. So um, I think, you know, for the most part, we did learn from that first uh, Super Bowl trip and uh, it paid dividends. You know, it didn't matter. We had plenty of distractions. I mean, we got in a, a, a wreck on the highway on the team bus. All three buses got in a wreck because this lady gets cuts cuts one of the buses off and slams on the brakes because she panicked. And I just remember, you know, I'm, I jolt forward. I hit the back of the headrest of the seat in front of me. And boom, this big bus just hits. Dude, what the hell just happened? Sure enough, we all got in a wreck. So there was plenty of distractions that we had. Um, you know, some guys' equipment didn't make it. Uh, team team bus got in a wreck. Um, that lady was obviously a Panthers fan. There <laughs> <laughs> was, I mean, there was plenty of distractions, but we all, um, you know, we all stayed, we all stayed focused, and uh, you know, we were when it came ready to kick off, we were. We, we were, for sure, way more ready than we were the first time. Yeah, that was something that you can just see on the – just I was watching it on TV. You can definitely see that there was a lot more 
it didn't seem like the spectacle got to you guys at all. And, and that team was a good team and nobody really played up to the hype, obviously with Carolina and cam, they were all about the flashy, what first down dance am I going to do? What touchdown dance am I going to do? You guys just kind of, I mean, even going back to that season, I think the defining moment of that season was the Patriots overtime game. And you went on a, a toss with just a basic halfback toss and you guys go down and score, but you could just tell that there was a different feel about that team. Like, yeah, no, we might not always be in the best situation, but we're just we're going to keep it close enough. We're going to be there at the end of the game, like you were saying, with the, the heavyweight boxing. I'm going to be able to knock you out in the 15th round just because I'm not going to give up. I'm going to push the same same way throughout the whole thing, and and by the end of the game, I'm just going to be there. Yeah, having them more defense in the league helped too. <laughs> uh, I, I, that, that doesn't hurt. Yeah, the, those guys were – uh, I remember as the line, we would sit back and we would just watch it, how unbelievable our our defense was. I mean, the additions of DeMarcus Ware really helped solidify and really even helped Vaughn turn a corner in his career as well. Um, you know, having a, being a guy that's been there and done that for so many years at a success, you know, such a high level. Um, and then kind of bringing Vaughn under his wing and Vaughn being a, such a freak athlete and really adhering to DeMarcus, I think uh, that kind of was the turning point in Vaughn's career as well. And I think um, a lot of other guys really fed off DeMarcus, DeWare's, um, uh, you know, his, his, just his professionalism, his persona that he, uh, you know, he exuded on the field. He was, uh, you know, we always say that he was, we kind of joked that he was real corporate, but he went, he handled his career like a business. I mean, he was there on time. Um, he was focused. He paid attention. I mean, everything. He was very, very on point with everything. And um, I think the defense really fed off of that. Um, you know, not only do we have top-notch caliber players, but that coupled with DeMarcus's, knowledge professionalism that kind of uh, other guys fed off of really helped um, bring our defense that, that much closer I mean the combination of DeMarcus on defense Peyton on offense and you on the O-line I can't get much veteran leadership there um, people not only forget that obviously Peyton went out on top but you did as well um, you you were able to call it a, a fantastic career after Super Bowl 50 um, let's, let's go back to that that moment of seeing that confetti fall did it did it feel surreal did it when you when you finally got to touch that Lombardi um, did it did everything all the emotions of all the previous years playing football for so long did they all come back in that moment it, it did um, I remember it was going to be a reality one I actually hit CJ Anderson into the end zone. Um, and there's a picture of me right uh, almost on top of him. And um, because all week long, coaches were like, they're not going to do an out charge on the goal line. Well, in true fashion, they did out charge. And so the defense line out charged, and I pulled around and I was supposed to hit the middle linebacker. Well, they had two. And I hit one and Keekly hit C.J. Anderson right at the goal line, at the one-yard line. And I go, oh, hell no. I'm, we're we're going we're gonna to score. We're going to put this game to bed. And I'm running over. There's a video clip of me running over. And I didn't even hit Keekly. I hit C.J. to ensure that I hit him in the damn end zone. 
I we I hit him and we all fall over. And the first thing I looked for was the ball and where it was according to the goal line. And I want to say it was six inches past the goal line. I go, and I just threw my hand up. And I knew at that point game was over. So over on the sideline and the buildup is happening. You know, like, dude, we're about to be world champs. And once that confetti started flying, dude, it was uh it, it was a special, special moment. Um uh, you know, hugging teammates, everything, looking for my wife, looking for my parents, coming down on the field. Um, because one thing I always did tell my fa- my grandfather before he pa- he he's still alive, thankfully, but I always told him before he passed away that I would um, his name would be at the biggest stage, and I'm named after him. So for him, uh, for me to carry his name at the biggest stage was an honor and a blessing for me to to have that with my grandfather. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine just all the different emotions and feelings. And um, it wasn't like a guarantee that that game was going to go that way. Carolina's defense was pretty good, but I feel like for as much crap as that Broncos offense got that year for the Peyton being injured for most of it, having Brock come in, it had to be even more fulfilling knowing that you did that to one of the better defenses in the league and still got to come out world champs on it at, at the end of it. Um, so I, I just, I don't know. I got goosebumps when you're going, going through that story. A little bit. I mean, it's a dream that a lot of people have when they start playing football and just to be able to accomplish that, that's gotta be something that you'll always be able to hang your hat on and, and try. And I feel like that's why you probably got into coaching and, and helping out those kids. Cause if you can get somebody just a little bit closer to that dream, that's gotta be almost as fulfilling as achieving it yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and it is a different feeling now. Uh, I, I do training, so I coach that aspect. I'm, I did coach high school ball when I first moved down here, but um, just wasn't coaching, especially in Texas. I don't know how it is in other states, but it can be political, especially in the college coaching world because I have a bunch of friends that are college coaches and professional coaches. I see, I, I've seen firsthand how I can get, so I didn't want any part of that. I knew that I was going to want to be a trainer and training my big boys how to be elite linemen. Because most of the time they're like, oh, you're big, you're gonna be a lineman, go over there. But they don't take the time to, to cater and really nurture their technique and show them properly. So um, that's what I've been doing with, uh, actually just uh, got a name and a logo, 6-5 training, art of the legal hold. You can catch me on Instagram. I love it. I love the, the legal hold stuff. That's yeah. You, it's on every play, but if you're good good enough at it, nobody's gonna call it. Exactly, because uh, I remember much of the defensive guys like, "Damn, Lou, you hold every play." I'm like, I hold legally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, I- and, and uh, we are we are coming toward the ends here. So now, if you don't mind, we'll <laughs> excuse me. We'll rapid fire you some questions. Um, they can be one word answers. They can be however however you may take it. So um, let's. Right. So Jimmy, you want to start with the first one? All right. Uh, as a former offensive lineman, I got to know who was your most difficult person that you had to prepare for, whether it be a, a D lineman, because I know you had to play against Geno Atkins a few, a few times, and I'm a Bengals fan, so I'm a little bit biased towards towards him. But D lineman or linebacker favorite or most most difficult D lineman or linebacker to prepare for. Richard Seymour. I like I like that one a lot. Um, for me, um, going along that those same lines, who was your 
um, the pro- your biggest opponent on, on your own team, like in practice, that gave you the toughest fits. So the guy that you saw every, every day of the week, um, that you were happy, that was on the same field as you on Sundays, but that you had to go against every single day of the week. You know, um, Derek Wolf, um, I remember I used to beat him all the time. Even when I first got into Denver, I'd beat him all the time, but I would show him tricks of the trade and he, he learned very well. So I, I knew that I was, in practice that I had to bring a little more because I knew I showed him a little too much. So um, I didn't like it, but it, it made us better as a team. So um, I was, I was thankful that he was on my team too. So. Uh, What was your favorite stadium to travel to outside of your home stadiums, whether it was Qualcomm in San Diego or Empower over here in Denver? You know, um, when I was in San Diego, I love Empower, but I will say Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a fun, uh, high energy place to play. Uh, just, I don't know. It's just something about that field that uh, playing there in Pittsburgh. It's it's pretty damn awesome. To to go on that one. Next one we have here is um, who was your road buddy? The guy that that you'd sit next to on the plane on on the way, road to way games, or the guy that you were playing games with when you were doing uh, team bonding stuff. Who who was your road buddy that you always um, hung around? Man, we were we were pretty tight as the offense line. Uh, as especially the we had an older offense line. It was me, Ryan Harris, and Evan Mathis. We were the old heads uh, of the group. So um, we were all three usually usually together. Um, but even before that, it was uh, me, Orlando, Clady, Manny Ramirez, Chris Clark, um, Zane Beatles, Chris Cooper, and um, JD Walton. I mean, we all we were we hung out with the old line, so uh, we always had uh, a designated room. We'd go play cards in and order food on whoever's room's dime. And um, yeah, we, we kept pretty tight with with Lyman. Uh, just it was just our nature. Um, didn't matter who it was. So uh, I'd say we kept tight with our group. That's uh, I mean, all the coaches that I've ever had say if you got five line, offensive linemen that hang out with each other willingly, you're going to be pretty damn successful. Yep. That's for sure. All right. Uh, last couple of questions from us. I guess my last one. Do you have any funny Peyton prank stories? Did you ever see him pull a pretty good prank? Because I know he was a, a jokester in the locker room and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a favorite Peyton? Two. So we were – my first year, we get down – we go to Rockies game. They're playing the Yankees. And he brought out a – it was actually the news, news crew, but they had him interview Orlando Franklin. And Decker was actually the one doing it. But mid-interview, Decker came up from behind Orlando and just pied him in the face on national TV. So that was one. Peyton set that one up. Another one, the following year in 2014, Peyton always has his uh, quarterback camp, and he always brings receivers out there. Well, Decker, for whatever reason, couldn't make it out there. I think it was uh, he just had a baby or something with his wife. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he missed it. So when he came, when we all came back for OTAs, um, Decker had a a letter uh, in a FedEx, and we always say if you get fined, you're gonna have a FedEx sitting in your locker. So it looked legit. It was a FedEx envelope sealed, and in Decker's uh, locker, Decker was like, "What the hell is this?" So he opens it, and it's a literal, legit NFL letterhead. I mean, everything was legit. 
And it basically said, since you uh, no-showed or didn't report to the camp, you're being fined X amount of dollars for room and board, for travel, each day missing, blah, blah, blah. And I want to say it was like, you know, a little over $10,000. Um, but Peyton let that go for about three days before he finally spilled the beans and told Decker. But he was letting Decker kind of sweat it out a little bit. But yeah, Peyton, Peyton, Peyton was always pulling jokes. Oh man, a guy with the new baby getting fined ten grand for for going and seeing the birth of his kid—that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that was then, one of the more most memorable ones I remember. And then the final one: if you had, if you could tell your um, high school football Louis Vasquez one thing, well, or from the man you are today, if you you could tell that person one more one thing going back then, what would it be? Um, I would probably have to say, um, take in as much as you can, learn as much as you can. Um, it's all that old saying goes, I wish I knew then what I know now. So, um, I would tell myself to, you know, take in and learn as much as I can then, um, because, um, I, I wish I did. I wish I would have paid attention more then and learned more. But, uh, you know, you're young and dumb and think you can do it on your own, figure it out. But, um, you know, uh, for sure, that's that's what I would tell myself. No, I think that's a good message for everybody, especially like you know, if you're looking to make something of yourself, no matter what it is, athletics or, you know, starting a business or anything like that. If you can listen to the people around you, have good people around you. That's, that's one of the bigger steps that you can take moving forward. Absolutely. Um, you got to have a good team around you, um, no matter what. So, um, the people you have around you will resonate into who you are as a person. So absolutely. Definitely. Well, we're not going to keep you too much longer. I know that you got your own things going on, but this has been a blast. I can't tell you how, uh, grateful we both are for you to come on to, to our show and and take this time out of your day and, and tell some stories about you know like we said you have one of the most storied careers for an offensive lineman uh, I remember obviously I, I heard about when you were getting picked up by the Broncos and the first thing my dad said was this dude is he plays the way that offensive linemen were supposed to be played so this has been an honor and, and I can't thank you enough for coming on yeah, that's uh, that's pretty badass to hear. Um, next, I mean, next time you hear, you talk to your dad, tell him I said thank you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I got to meet you during that Super Bowl run. It was an honor to meet you then, and then now to get a chance to pick your brain. Um, I know this won't be the last time I'm sure I'll ever talk to you, and, and it's an honor to not only get to hear your many stories, but like I said, Super Bowl champion, first team All Pro. The accolades go on and on, man, for you, and um, it's it's an honor, and we are so thankful to have you on, man. Thank you again. Absolutely. Um, just to add, I'm talking to your dad about bringing the foundation up there. So hopefully it happens soon. Of course. No, we, I mean, we'll, we'll support you. We'll um, fund you all there. We'll, we'll be there when, when you come back down to Denver, uh, we will be full board again. All our listeners be sure to check out Louis, Louis Vasquez. Sorry. I keep saying Louis, Louis Vasquez uh, legacy foundation. Um, you can check it all out. Um, like I said, we'll keep posting about you guys every, every time you guys have big things coming up for sure. But thank you again, man. It's an honor. Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys. It was fun. When the night is cold and lonely This is a dollar bill piece.
Was it the money that made me a savage? Popping them purses and I made it a habit. Towing them pistols and serving them addicts. That was exciting to me. I'm so excited to be. Started with nothing, we had to inspire to be. Elephants again, head of me. I'm getting to it. Feel like the man, I got the plan. I call the shooters, they out with the van. Play with the squad, get piled like a sand. Piled like a perk, I'm going here. I'm going crazy, I'm yeah, we sticking up for nigga. Let that music like I look a sand. I'm in the kitchen, compressing the bird. Take out a nine and that's